Welcome to the Drop Hammer Reading. My name is Matthew Durden and I present to you from Buffalo State College, writers of poetry and short stories. The Drop Hammer student reading series began in 2008 to let Buffalo State students, faculty, and staff read their original poetry, fiction, and creative nonfiction in front of an audience and to give them a chance to meet and connect with other writers on campus. The series is named in honor of Manny Freed, a member of the English department faculty who taught creative writing at Buffalo State from 1972 until 2008. He wrote his first play in 1927 at the age of 14 and went on to become the author of many well-known plays, including The Dodo Bird, Boilermakers and Martinis, and his most successful play, Drop Hammer. We welcome any writing, poetry, short stories, essays, creative nonfiction. Writers are encouraged to be unique and surprising. We hope that students will see and hear things in the readings that surprise them, challenge them, and inspire them. All writing majors and minors are encouraged to read their work at least once at Drop Hammer, but all students, regardless of their majors, are welcome and encouraged to participate. This is Maureen Logan. The name of my story is Dead Spot. It's pouring rain by the time I get there. That little cutoff of road that skirts the big intersection out in the middle of nowhere. Tim's standing back, away from his car and its front passenger wheel sunk into the shallow ditch. Away from the tow truck and tow truck driver all getting ready to pull it out. Away from the sheriff and the sheriff's car standing there being drenched by the buckets of rain pouring down on top of him. He's not facing my direction as I drive up, but he turns when he hears the engine and hurries over to me while I park out of the way and get out of my car. God, the look on his face. My kid brother might be 23. He might be 14 feet tall and 7 feet wide. He might have survived Afghanistan, if only just barely. But right now, the look on his face is pure little kid, freaked out and guilty as hell. I pull the hood of my jacket over my head and wish I'd taken three more minutes to put my boots on instead of my sneakers. But the phone call, this is the Niagara County Sheriff's Department. Is this Mary Sullivan? Your brother Tim's been in an accident. Had me running out of the house almost before I hung up the phone. Tim's not wearing a jacket. It's probably in his car or maybe he even left it somewhere. And the yellow of the tow truck's beacon and the red of the sheriff's light bar strobe a weird light show on his plaid shirt as he takes long steps to get to me. He's swiping his sopping bangs back out of his eyes with one hand and holding out his other hand like he's offering me something. And when he's close enough, I see that it's his cell phone all but swallowed up in his grip. I couldn't get a signal, he says, and he says it desperate, like it's his first and only defense against anything I might be going to yell at him. He knows the sheriff's department called me, and he thinks I'm going to be level 10 pissed. And I am until I'm close enough to tell that he hasn't been drinking. He scrapes rain from his face, which does no good, because more rain falls and keeps falling, and he holds the phone out like he's waiting for me to take it and find out for myself that he couldn't get a signal. Honest, Mayor, I tried, but I couldn't get a signal. Are you okay? I ask instead of yelling, and Tim looks at his phone like he's not sure what to do with it if I'm not going to take it from him. He finally shoves it into his pocket. Went into the ditch, he mumbles at me without looking at me. He shrugs a shoulder back toward the tow truck. Sheriff came by and got the record to come here, and, you know, called you. Are you okay? I ask again because he hasn't answered that question yet. He only scrapes the rain off his face again and doesn't say. It's not quite six, but the sun is almost set and the flashing lights bouncing off the vehicles and off the shiny black pavement make it look like a dozen vehicles are here, like a horrible accident happened. But no, it's just my kid brother having a crisis, another crisis. What happened? Did you hit something? No answer. The ground catches his interest instead. I'm this close to wanting to yell. 
I didn't scuttle my plans for a nice quiet evening to drive 20 miles in a wild rainstorm and get no answers. But another possibility presents itself. Tim, did you think you hit something? It's a hard question to ask because it's probably a hard question to answer. Even without drinking, or maybe because he's not drinking, 114 days and counting, gremlins have taken a timeshare in my brother's reality. He turns his head down and away until he's practically talking into his shirt collar. I thought, I thought it was going to explode. That takes me a minute to figure out. You thought what was going to explode, your car? That. He shrugs his shoulder towards his car again, but all I keep seeing is car and sheriff and tow truck and tow truck driver. Nothing to do but walk over and find out what he's talking about. I move off that way and Tim makes a fast turn to keep up with me. Go wait in the car, I tell him. You're already soaked through. Where's your jacket? But he doesn't go to my car, of course. He doesn't say where his jacket is. He keeps in step with me and comes with to make sure I see what he saw. I can only imagine what he saw. The sheriff is watching the tow truck driver, but he turns as we get closer. He's wearing a yellow slicker and plastic cover on his Stetson to protect him from the deluge. He looks late 20s, not any older than me. Thanks for getting word to me, I tell him. Yeah, it's a dead spot here, no service in or out. He raises his voice over the din of the rain. He sounds fine, like standing in the pouring rain watching a car getting winched out of a muddy ditch is just all part of the job and no big deal. He jerks his chin at the tow truck driver who is in his own slicker that maybe was big enough 20 years ago. A hood that's too big and isn't attached to anything. He's already got the car hooked up and he's at the back of his truck checking his levers. He'll have you out of here in a jiffy, the sheriff says, that cuts me a look, like he knows something or doesn't want to know something. You'll be on your way. That answers my unasked but constant worry that Tim will be in some kind of trouble. Thanks, I tell him, and he nods, and I look up at Tim, practically attached to my side. Come on and show me what you're talking about. It's over there, he mumbles, hands shoved in his pockets, shrugging that shoulder to point me across the road from where his car is about to be hauled back onto solid ground. I swear I'm glad he hasn't been drinking, but the shrugs and mumbles and half-answers are dragging spikes over my nerves. All right, come on. I move off in that direction, trying to tell as I'm walking over if the black blob I finally see on that side of the road is a dead raccoon or a dead dog or a dead bag of trash. Tim follows me, but as we get closer, he walks slower until he's dead stopped in the middle of the road. Did you hit it, I ask, and Tim mumbles something, and I'm wet and cold and unhappy. Tim, did you hit it? I thought it was going to explode. He says that right out and loud, and the sheriff turns to look back, but he doesn't move towards us. I scrape the rain off my face and walk over to the lump. It's just a black plastic bag, split open and spilling garbage. Tim stays nailed to the yellow line. Get out of the road before some fool comes bearing or barreling around that corner and... God help me, I almost say and splatters you, and Timmy knows I almost say it. And he squints and nods and starts to scuff over to me because he thinks I'm finally angry. And I move back to meet him halfway because I'm not. Not really. Hey, I say, because even though I'm right in front of him, he's trying hard to not have to look at me. I don't want you to get hit, okay? Come on out of the road. I thought it was going to explode, he says again. I know, but it's not going to explode. You know it's not going to explode. Please, God, I think after eight months of being home, Timmy has to know that roadside garbage isn't going to explode. Yeah, I know that he finally says, sounding like he's asking me a question instead of answering one, and it'd have more weight behind it if he said it to my face and not down to his boots. Come on over and look at it, I tell him. He's got to face his fear, right? Come on over and see that it's not going to blow up. It's just garbage. He closes his eyes and keeps them closed like he's praying or marshalling his courage or hoping the garbage will be gone when he opens his eyes again. 
like our luck would change like that. Tim, come on, just look at it. He doesn't move out of the road and the rain doesn't stop pouring buckets down on us. His hair is streaming, my sneakers are soaked through, we're both shivering, and I think maybe it's not true anymore. Maybe there's just as good a chance that garbage in Sanborn, New York will explode and blow a hole as big as a tank into the ground like it might have back in Afghanistan. Like it had exploded in Afghanistan too many times. Too many explosions, too many splatters. All right, it's okay. I put my hand on Tim's arm, around his elbow, and then down to his hand, cold and hanging loose by his side. Ice cold. I move my hand back up to his elbow and give a tug. Come on this way. Let's get off the road and wait for your car. He doesn't budge for a second. His eyes are on the ruptured garbage bag. Slabs of rain run down his face, but he doesn't scrape it off. Then he starts moving, walking, scuffing alongside of me to the side of the road crisscrossed by the strobing lights. We stand there listening to the rain slapping the pavement, listening to the whining gears as the truck hauls his front wheel out of the ditch. Tim's staring somewhere off the toe of his boots, and I'm wondering if it's worth trying to get him into my car for three minutes of dry and not as cold. Then I wonder what happens after his car is back on solid ground. I can't just say, drive safe, stay dry, and leave him to it. I'm going to have to follow him home. It's 15 miles to his apartment and then 17 miles back to my house from there in the wet and cold and dark. But it's better than getting another phone call from another sheriff another hour on. I'll follow you home. Make sure you get there, I tell him. I stop myself before saying, in one piece. There's already too many pieces of too many people careening through his memory. I'm sorry, he says, but it doesn't sound like he's talking to me. He's staring at nothing, talking to nobody, to the gremlins, reliving a hundred horrors he's never been able to talk about with me. Okay, Tim, I'll follow you home, just to be sure. He looks at me, and his mouth moves like maybe he's saying my name, only I don't hear him, and I don't think it's because of how loud the rain is on the hood of my jacket. What? You can't follow me everywhere. Sure I can, I want to say. I can do anything. But I can't follow him everywhere. As much as I want to follow him home and to work and to school and to the grocery store and anywhere else he might ever have to go, I can't. Even if we aligned our days so that he never drove anywhere unless I was there to drive with him, it would never work. It would never be enough. Maybe you should move back in with Uncle Bob, I offer instead. He wants you to. Alan wants you to. It's close enough that you can walk to work. You wouldn't have to worry about cooking or laundry or... I'm desperate, and I sound desperate. Tim's exasperated, and he looks exasperated. Rolls his eyes and shakes his head and huffs out a breath that drops his shoulders an inch or two. He doesn't say anything. Now that the initial shock is over, he's closing up on me. A few yards down the pavement from us, his car is finally all four wheels on solid ground. And if I can't reach him now, I'm going to lose my chance. But he's already walking to his car, and I hurry to catch up with him. I want you to be okay, Timmy. I want to be sure you're okay. Not your responsibility, he tells me, and I'm just about to shout back like hell it's not. I didn't get you back from war just to lose you in a ditch on my doorstep, but I'm not sure what the point would be. He's past his panic at going into the ditch, past caring if I'm pissed at him for whatever reason. The fear is gone, the guilt is gone, and in another minute my little brother is going to be gone, reliving nightmares, dodging gremlins, driving down a dark, slick, rainy road. I just want you to be safe. He looks back at the garbage. There is nowhere safe. He thanks the tow truck driver, nods to the sheriff, and starts to get into his car. He stops, though. With the door open and the rain still pouring down, he stops and scrapes the rain from his face and pushes his bangs out of his eyes. Call me when you get home, okay? He says, asks, offers. Just call me, okay? Yeah, yeah, I'll call you. He nods and almost smiles. Then he gets into his car and finishes his drive to the end of the short road. 
He turns onto the big road and drives off into the dark and rain. Our next reader is Julio Valentin. Hi, this is Julio Valentin, and the piece that I'll be reading is If the Evening Continued for Wallace Stevens. 32. The shadow is evidence of self, treading on the edge between being and been. It is motion that gives meaning to a city. It is momentum that develops shadow. For shade is but an imposter to the essence in which we call reality, or rather, a marker that all things of meaning are never truly lost or transfixed in translation, untransfigured by the meaninglessness. It is the state without oligarchy that all of the things of meaning can be its own shape or color, not mood. Transition is definition being exported. However, one must be diligent and unbiased, for to travel on paved roads is to tread on the lost. Contiguous are shade and shadow, diluted by the unvoiced counterpart of tea, bobbled by the string of thought into stream of transformation. Sound is only a fraction of the filtered world. And more, and more, and more, a more to meaning as words not of song, but into shades of past being. 33. To have been the past being come into exist is to possess the moon after sunrise with which is expected. For we long for nights to have gleamed reflection untrue and true and unreal. Ben still wishes to be part of today. Today only determines a portion of meaning, one phase of natural order to things to come and will be gone. The day is for bees hard at work building momentum from past recollection to an experienced present. See the city of flowers for what it is and not what it could be. Each a tower is an unprocessed color to cultivate expression beyond its existence. Say what is meaning and meaninglessness will follow. Instead, what does slanted rays of wind hush landscapes, gargled laughter into lollygally moments, desperate for words in this have in common. Poetry and prose is humanity's attempt to capture the sublime within its own image, but foolish are the many entrenched in its interpretation. Thank you. Our next reader is Ashley Stiles. Um, this piece is entitled Glow. I uh, wrote it, have been workshopping it for a while. Um, I wrote it originally about my older sister, Danae, who uh, has been off the grid for nine years, um, and it's mostly true. Um, okay, glow. I hate the way you'd peel the glowing butts off fireflies to press them onto your earlobes or smear them onto your eyelids so they'd glow. It made no sense when you gave the dead houseflies in the windowsills proper burials after you pillaged the golden, wheat-filled village of their phosphorescent friends and distant cousins. Is it because they died of natural causes that you commend their life success, naming the flies in your service while mourning their death? Fireflies embody a certain beauty, a thing within yourself you could never see. Smearing death across your eyes, the fading light as it slowly dies, victory and rebellion, a graceless, gracious statement to standards stacked against us all. Was it that they were unconfined, a form of free, a place you always longed to be, Brutalized glowing bodies deformed for iridescence you wanted and couldn't have until you could have and you did take your leave. What I truly loathe is that you never came home. Now we'll hear from Joseph Robertson. Don't. 
Judge me by my success. Judge me for my struggle. If only you knew what it takes to survive this concrete jungle. A jungle where stomachs rumble and violence stumbles on your doorsteps. Where you have to clean the butter off the streets like the floor's wet. And if only those tears could drain the strain on my body. But instead it only stains my pain cold like graffiti in my lobby. A place where picking up cold bodies becomes hobbies. Where police only lobby after the damage was done. Too busy picking off my brothers with their trigger fingers by the bullets. They we were boogers by their guns. What did we running for? Stuck in the trenches of the slums and I swear success is like chasing the sun, a mission impossible. Or growing up alive with American 109 makes anything accomplishable. I'm a soldier of the hood, preaching to the place where the image of a dream is often misunderstood. But social media reacts faster than 911 would. If only you stood where I stood, you would understand why I have so much heart under my hood. These streets used to carry culture. They starved us, then wonder why we turned to vultures. But I plan on turning our struggles into poetic sculptures. I hereby carry the rebirth of an oppressed nation on my shoulders. These cold streets are what gave me my burning ambition. I'm the new leading voice that my era was missing. And it's time for my generation to arise. But we are the young and gifted in disguise. Our next reader is Matthew Durden. The name of the piece I'm getting ready to read is, I want to be an airborne soldier. Yes, it's true. I wanted to go airborne. I wanted to jump from a perfectly good airplane. Stand up, hook up, and shuffle to the door and jump right out on a count of four. 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, four. Jump right out on a count of four. This has been my dream since my brother returned home from jump school wearing jump wings and shiny jump boots. That's it. I was going airborne, graduated from high school and signed on a dotted line, 101st Airborne Air Mobile. Soon I would get my chance to jump from that big iron bird. I caught that Greyhound bus and I was off to Fort Jackson, South Carolina to process into the military. Fresh off my father's farm down in Georgia, I grew up the second from the oldest of five siblings. We were sharecroppers down in the southern part of Georgia. The bus arrived at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and we were ordered off the bus and began processing into the military. We were checked from head to toe, received shots, and filled out lots of papers. We received a briefing, and I passed our exam to qualify to be a soldier in the United States Army. After processing at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, we loaded on the bus and headed out to Fort Knox, Kentucky. Fort Knox, Kentucky is where I spent eight weeks going through basic training. It was late in the evening when we arrived at Fort Knox, Kentucky. We pulled up to the World War II-style barracks. The bus stopped, and we were ordered off the bus with each person holding in their hands a big vanilla folder containing papers with orders processed at Fort Jackson, South Carolina. We were immediately placed in what would be later known as a formation, which is a large group of people placed together in an orderly manner. There, in that formation, I observed for the first time someone speaking with authority, wearing a creased military uniform while wearing something that looked like a smoker bear hat. We were all young kids, most of us away from home for the first time and in an unfamiliar environment. There, to greet us, was this figure of a person who appeared to be ready to back the head off the first person who made a dumb move. I did not want that person to be me. We were moved in an orderly manner to a building where we were given all the supplies needed for the next eight weeks of basic training. And we also got paid. I received money for enlisting in the United States Army. I spent eight weeks at Fort Knox 
while going through basic training. After completion of basic training, I received orders for advanced training at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. It was here at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, I trained on the same installation with guys who jumped from the Big Iron Bird, including my brother who was stationed at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, while I was stationed there. When I joined the military, it was with the 101st Airborne Air Mobile. My unit didn't jump out of planes, but rather flew around from point A to point B on helicopters and repair from everything in sight, including repelling from the helicopter. While stationed at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, which included both airborne and air mobile troops, my unit would be out on the physical training field at 0400 hours early in the mornings getting ready with push-ups and sit-ups. And off at a distance, I could hear those guys who jumped from the Big Iron Birds singing in cadence. I want to be an airborne ranger. Stand up. Hook up, shuffle to the door, jump right out on a count of four. 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, and four. Jump right out on a count of four. I'm very happy to introduce our next reader, Mr. Bob Budden. Hi, this is Bob Budden, and I am reading from Julian Barnes' The Sense of an Ending. We live in time. It holds us and molds us, but I've never felt I understood it very well. And I'm not referring to theories about how it bends and doubles back or may exist elsewhere in parallel versions. No, I mean ordinary, everyday time, which clocks and watches assure us us passes regularly. Tick tock, click clock. Is there anything more plausible than a second hand, and yet it takes only the smallest pleasure or pain? to teach us time's malleability. Some emotions speed up, others slow it down. Occasionally it seems to go missing until the eventual point is when it really does go missing, never to return. I'm not very interested in my school days and don't feel any nostalgia for them, but school is where it all began, so I need to return briefly to a few incidents that have grown into anecdotes, to some approximate memories which time has deformed into certainty. If I can't be sure of the actual events anymore, I can at least be true to the impression these facts left. That's the best I can manage. And our final reader today is Ralph Wallstrom. Uh, this is a story called Daddy. The driver jams the accelerator and the f- Van fishtails off the exit ramp and onto the expressway. He says, I love you, Mary. I'm sorry, Mary. I tried to be a good father, but your goddamn mother wouldn't let me be. Wouldn't let me do the things I needed to do. Wouldn't let me do things my way. I'm sorry, Mary. I love you, Mary. I'm so sorry. It's some combination of this over and over again. I don't know Mary or her poor mother, who I assume is now hacked to pieces on her living room carpet but I'm absolutely sure that this bald, fat, below-average man is going to kill us both. The speedometer reads 90 now. He stares ahead, robot-like, his hands firmly fixed at 10 and 2 o'clock. Spittle drips from the side of his mouth. I love you, Mary. I'm so sorry. Christ, I'm not Mary. But it doesn't seem the time to force the point. I know, I know. Don't ever get into a car with a stranger. I'd stumbled along the packed sidewalk, weaving through the mass of rich-ass suburbanite holiday shoppers and worn-out IT workers on their way home, when the guy stuck a pistol barrel into my ribs and pushed me into the open door of his minivan. It was too easy. 
too quick, and none of the passers-by blinked. So much for cops and homeland security. Now I'm here sitting in a 90s vintage Dodge Caravan next to a guy whose idea of a family outing is murder and probably suicide. The speedometer says 95 and it's rising. Okay, so I smoked a joint with my friend just before I hit the street and it was good stuff. I wasn't ready to fight off a homicidal maniac. So now I'm feeling for two. The terrified, paranoiac panic in me and the mellow nothing can phase I need a munchie me. Either way, both versions of me have to figure out a way to get from the car to the street that doesn't include massive blood loss and brain splatter. The needle floats across the 100 mile per hour mark and the panic in me is beginning to win out. We slide under the Niagara overpass. Although the sign is a green flash at this speed, I know it reads 33 west, one quarter mile. It's my exit. Hell, they're all my exit. It's gone in an instant and we hurtle on into the night. The needle continues to rise. Christ, where the hell are the cops when you need them? At 106 miles per hour, I have an idea. Dad, I ask. The bawling man with Fred Flintstone stubble mutters, I love you, Mary. I love you. Dad, I say again, more forcefully. The man falls silent. Dad, can we stop for ice cream? The speedometer drops off to 95 and rests there. Dad, I try again. Please, Dad, can we get some ice cream? I could really go for some ice cream. He mutters under his breath. I told the bitch to shut up, to stop her shit, goddammit. I told her she was driving me nuts. I told her, Mary. I goddamn told her. I don't know if I'm reaching him, but the van is steady at 95 now, so I try a new approach. I know, Dad. She didn't mean it, Dad. She really didn't mean it, and now she's sorry, Dad. He stops mumbling and looks over at me maybe for the first time. He looks directly at me. In the dark, and I can, I can almost make out his face, pale and fleshy. I figure I'm getting through, so I lay it on thick. She said she didn't mean it, Dad. She said she loved you, a lot. We slide past one exit after another. The lights along Highway 90 illuminate the inside of the van. His lips are tight and his puffy white flesh is shaking. Then his face softens and his eyes are clear and fixed on mine. It's just an instant, but it's enough. My breath catches in my throat. They are profoundly sad eyes, like the eyes of my father, the day he left, and so many days before that. The day my mother told him she never wanted to see him again. She hadn't bothered to ask my opinion. His sobs are low and quiet and come from deep down inside, and his body shakes in soft spasms. Once again, his foot, like a disinterested machine part, bears down on the accelerator. 100, 105, and rising. I wouldn't have thought this ancient death trap could move so fast. I glance at my captor, his body still heaves with pent-up hurt and despair. I have to do something to raise the stakes. Come on, Dad, don't cry. She isn't worth it. She didn't understand you. She didn't appreciate you enough. His body shudders as his chest expands and his breathing catches, relaxes, and slows. We are moving nearly 110 miles per hour now. I'm not afraid. He speaks quietly. You know, Mary, I loved your mother so much. I loved her completely. I loved her. The highway opens before us. We are the only ones on the road this night as he pushes us faster and says, And I loved you, Mary. It broke my heart to have to leave. Please believe me, Mary. I touch his hand. He stares straight into the oncoming night, and we fly faster, faster, impossibly fast into the long night. I hope you enjoyed the drop hammer reading of portrait and short stories from writers from Buffalo State College. Stay focused.